Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Dr. Ann Barter, a functional medicine doctor in Colorado. Dr. Barter and I had a great conversation regarding a number of aspects of health, talking about environmental toxins, talking about blood sugar and how that affects our system, getting into the thyroid and how that affects our performance, and also diving into neurotransmitters, those things that make us happy, that make us sad, that help basically create the mood that we live in. It's a little off the normal sports performance topic, but at the same time, it is so integral into our everyday function as a human and does play into how we perform on a daily basis. So I think whether you are an athlete, a coach, or a clinician, you can get some great value out of this podcast. So let's tune in. Anne, how are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You are quite welcome. I am super excited to get you on here. It's not a direction that I go very often with my podcast, but I think it's so important because it plays, what you do plays such a huge role in just inflammation and our overall health um, in general, which plays in a big, huge factor in for athletes in performance, essentially. So um, let's kind of just dive in first off with who are you and how did you get into set this area that you're working in? Oh, such a loaded question. But I think um, the bottom line was um, I used to be an athlete. Um, I was recruited. I was recruited to run for college. I was a competitive dancer. How it all started was I remember having like crazy bad period cramps and, you know, I would have acne on my face and I'm slightly vain. So that just did not work for me. And anyway, I remember going to the primary care doc and, um, I basically said, Hey, I'm having, I'm, I'm bloated. I, my periods are terrible and I have all this acne. What do you think I should do? And she said, Hey, you need some different gel. And if that doesn't work, you need birth control. And if that doesn't work, you need Accutane. Well, a long story short, the different gel didn't work. Um, the uh, birth control also didn't work. And ultimately, nobody addressed anything like diet, like, um, you know, uh, running my hormones, running to see what my blood work looked like, running it in a functional way to maybe see what was going on or potentially what could be tweaked to create optimal performance for me. So if you fast forward a couple years, I remember waking up one morning and I was, I had such bad abdominal pain. I just asked my mom cause I had just succumbed to the fact that this was just going to be my life. Um, I asked my mom if I could stay home from school because I uh, had really bad period cramps and she said, we're going to the doctor. You can't even stand up straight. Well, I had mistaken period cramps for my appendix exploding. And so um, they rushed me back into emergency surgery. Long story short, it was removed. Nobody talked to me about diet. Everybody said that I was perfectly healthy. My, my blood pressure, my pulse, all of that were just so low. So they just kept on commenting on what an athlete I was. And then fast forwarding a couple more years, I started breaking out into hives all over my body where I actually looked like a character from Star Wars. I was going through um, my like campus and I'm so embarrassed and I'm wearing a hoodie and I just look deformed. And finally, after Benadryl, an emergency room visit to the hives swelling up in my throat, I just was finally done with it. And I finally sought alternative care. And... Um, Finally, I got some answers about potentially allergies, and I was having anaphylaxis issues. I wasn't having a Benadryl deficiency, and had I known then what I know now, I would have been a competitive dancer actually at a professional level. I would have actually been a pro runner. I think that things would have shifted because this was a difference on not allowing me to go to the next level. That is an awesome story and background. Yeah, and I just want people to know that there's options if they're struggling. I think that's my main purpose in this. So what did you personally, like, what did you discover was your issues going on that? And what did you do for them? (laughs) Well, that's a long list, but (laughs) I'll try to make it brief. So um, big, big things for me was I had a a pretty substantial dairy allergy at the time. Um, So, so the, the hives came from dairy 
Um, I was living in a dorm. So the mold, um, mold is a huge thing that I'm very passionate about talking about in practice. Um, and then on top of that, I had all kinds of gut infections. I had blood sugar dysregulation. I didn't know how to eat. I didn't know when to eat. I didn't know what to eat. I thought what I was doing was great. This was a time of low fat. Um, I was doing, I ended up doing paleo and low fat. You should just, that was dynamic. I mean, this was about 20 years ago. Um, but but I, I think the big things for me uh, was blood sugar. I had a muscle wasting issue. I had um, high levels of parasite. I had high levels of environmental mold exposure in the dorm that I was in. I had food sensitivities. And because I had such severe blood sugar dysregulation, I had actually turned into a smoker. I had high levels of heavy metals in my system, which was another one. Um, you know, I think the list just went on and on and on that basically my health was not optimal. Huge levels of inflammation, low-grade infections, you name it. So let's dive into that because I know the environmental toxins and the mold is a huge passion of yours and a real a huge area you focus in. So what essentially, besides everything in existence, can cause environmental toxins that you know we just don't realize on a day-to-day basis that we're coming in contact with And what do these toxins actually do to our bodies? Well, I mean, ultimately, you know, metals and environmental toxins are endocrine disruptors. We know that they are potentially causing cancer. They can contribute to autoimmune disease. So, for example, there has been a link between mercury in the thyroid gland, uh, chlorine in the thyroid gland is another one. Um, I've also seen mold in the thyroid gland. Um, in practice. Where I live, um, we have a lot of drilling and um, that's just part of it. And so the drilling ends up in the, the benzene ends up in the air, but benzene is also um, secreted by cars. And so you have that in, and ultimately that creates air pollution. And so again, that's carcinogenic. So this can lead to cancer. This can lead to endocrine disruptors. We're seeing um, a lot of these things like uh, the off-gassing of gasoline, things in uh, styrofoam containers, etc. The list kind of goes on and on. Um, we're, we're just seeing high levels of that in the air, in people's food, and in people's water. So if those are the three things that you can control, like you know, having an air filter in your house is really important. Uh, making sure that you're uh, filtering your water in some way, um, you know, and also in the water, we also know there's pharmaceuticals. There's high levels of birth control pills. Think about what that's doing to men. Think about what those high levels of estrogens are doing to men. Um, we also have uh, high amounts of SSRIs or uh, you know, uh, serotonin or antidepressants in the water. So there's a lot of pharmaceuticals as well in the water that potentially you can't filter out if you're getting water that... Um, from a city, it depends on where your water's coming from. Is it runoff from a, a, a glacier? I mean, where's the water coming from? Um, but, you know, air exposure is very, very common. I think the other thing that's really important to mention, um, I live in Colorado. It's very dry here. I'll tell you on probably 70 of the patients I consult with, they have been exposed to high levels of mold. There's been flooding in their house. There's been a leak. Uh, there, we there was just, for whatever reason, they were exposed. Mold is the great imitator. It's a whole lot like Lyme disease. Um, it's, you, you just start to think you're getting old. That just becomes like your MO. I'm just getting older. I just, um, I, oh, oh yeah, I hurt more than normal. I'm just getting older. Oh yeah, I'm just a little older. I'm just getting a little bit fatter. Oh, I'm just a little more tired. I'm getting older. It's, it's just such a slow progression where you're starting to get exposed to mold. In fact, um, when I personally was exposed to mold, I gained 20 pounds. I'm not very big. So 20 pounds is a lot on me. And so that's a big difference. Um, and it was actually 20 pounds of inflammation. When I moved out of that situation, I was a lot better, but it will affect your athletic performance. It'll affect your neurotransmitters. It'll affect your endocrine system. It'll also affect your hormones. So, um, for example, in the workout world, I think there's a lot of talk of testosterone, for example. So I'll just use this as a, as an example here, um, as testosterone, testosterone and, um, 
and inflammation are have an inverse relationship. That means as testosterone goes up, inflammation will be down, right? So that's that allows testosterone to come up. As inflammation goes up, testosterone will come down. We have an epidemic. A lot of men are sitting around 300 total testosterone. I mean, I see that commonly, and, and I'm in a very athletic part of the state. Two to 300, men really should be sitting a lot higher than that to achieve the results that they want testosterone-wise. And this is not me advocating and saying, go out and be on testosterone. This is me just saying, hey, you know, there is a direct correlation with inflammation and some of these things environmentally that you're exposed to. So for example, um, mold is the biggest thing that you can control because you can remediate it out of your house. But if you smell something musty, if you're feeling more tired, if your aches and pains aren't healing or going away, if your recovery has become slower, um, all of those things are indicative that you could potentially have a mold exposure. That's really interesting because, you know, most people don't don't even think about mold being an issue because it's like, oh, well, they've never, since they lived in a certain place, they never had a leak or anything like that. But it's years and years of development a lot of times with these mold issues. And so, you know, even myself, like I can't tell you whether some of the older homes I've lived in in my past had mold or not, but it's very possible that that they did. Yeah. And you don't know. It's like very weird. Like you'll live there and you'll be like, yeah, my symptoms progressed. Yeah. I wasn't healing. Yeah. I'm doing all these things that the doctors have said, and I'm just feeling more depressed or I'm getting more hair loss or, um, you know, I, I, I have a patient that is, um, early thirties. He got, he got gum, uh, gum disease where actually you cannot see his, um, the roots anymore. Like he doesn't have any of the lower gums and dentally, you know, I'm asking all these questions like about dental history, the, the dentist and all the people taking care of his teeth are doing an incredible job, but it came back down to his environmental exposure. He lived in a house with high levels of black mold. And when you really drill down into it, he never thought anything of it. He never thought anything of the smell, but it's kind of like a musty, dirty sock smell. So obviously we can do methods to get rid of these, whatever toxins they are, mold or any other toxins that are in our house. What do we then do to then clear them from our bodies? So depends on what we're talking about. So um, one of the biggest things that um, help if you're talking about environmental exposure is sweating is really important. And then taking a shower after you sweat is also very important because what ends up happening is you can reabsorb that. Making sure you're drinking enough water, making sure you're having bowel, good bowel function, um, that you are also um, urinating. That all those things are really, really important to eliminate these toxins out of your body. Um, I think sauna therapy is awesome. I personally am a big fan of a far infrared sauna. I do it for about 20 minutes a day. I just think it is a good treatment to continue to sweat as well. And then I'm an avid mountain biker. Um, I'm an avid runner. I like to do all those things. I'm outdoors all the time. So I always shower right when I come home. Um, making sure you know that you're eating a clean diet and watching the amount of pesticides you're taking into your body. Uh, filtering your water is really important. And then also getting an air filter in your house. Now, when we're getting these out of our system, it depends on what we're talking about. But for example, like something like NAC or glutathione is going to be very helpful. Something also called NAD is also going to be helpful for detoxification. Um, and, and in some instances, CoQ10 is really effective. Um, it just depends on what the environmental toxin you're being exposed to. So a lot of times my patients in practice say, um, well, I'm taking glutathione. I dose glutathione so high if I suspect environmental exposure on top of all of those other things. So I think what's best is you can run a urine challenge test, I generally use Great Plains, um, but you can run a urine challenge test just to see what you have in your body. And before you do this test, you really need to do a challenge of the glutathione because that starts to eradicate things from your tissues. As it relates to mold um, and mold detoxification, and, and granted, this takes some time. So this is not like pop a pill and you're done. Um, as it relates to, to mold detoxification, I tell patients that they need to be on board for uh, three, probably three to months to three years, depending on how chronic the exposure was, how sick the patient is, how sensitive they are to mold. Now, some people 
I just want to make this clear um, before I go on with this, but some people don't have a gene that makes them sensitive, for example, to mold. So that means that they could be, uh, let's say black molds in the attic and they could be upstairs um, in the attic licking black mold and they have no problems because they're they're not genetically predisposed they don't have the gene other people have the gene and they're so incredibly sensitive that they walk into a grocery store and there might be mold somewhere and they have adverse effects those people are very far on the spectrum most of us are in between uh, it is not dose dependent but I in the literature but I have seen a correlation with how much you're exposed, you tend to get sicker and sicker and sicker, right? Um, so what I generally do to detoxify mold is, is first I, I need to make sure that it's eradicated out of the house. The second thing um, that I do is I do a mix of very high-dose glutathione and NAC. NAC is a precursor for glutathione, which is our body's master antioxidant to detoxify. Then I use what's called an ultra binder. This one has zeolites, bentonite clay, and um, activated charcoal. And what this does is we're not only releasing mold, but we're also releasing heavy metals. So I have a patient do that as well as a form of algae so that when um, the patient eats, the, the algae um, helps us to mobilize the mold and then um, we're able to bind it up by that binder toxin and so we ultimately give the patient breaks because generally they do um, they can feel really sick headachey you'll have all these detoxification symptoms for probably uh, the first one to two to three rounds of it some people feel great on it and they just feel fantastic and they can sleep again and their skin doesn't itch and and then suddenly their aches and pains go away etc but um, it just completely depends on the case it's really interesting and truly fascinating just all the different things that we can just do naturally to clear all these toxins out of our system mm -hmm. and they're just they're available and I will say one other thing about environmental toxicities, especially mold. Most of these patients get put on antidepressants, antipsychotics, or they feel incredibly anxious, anti-anxiety meds, um, and they're basically told it's in their head. And generally, it's a mycotoxin poisoning like mold. Um, and especially if you really feel like something is not in your head, you might want to investigate it further because... Um, the more patients I see that are dosed on these drugs, the more it comes back to something going on functionally that we can address. It's pretty easy, um, but but mold is one of those things that I see a lot, and I don't even live in a humid climate. You mentioned it kind of in passing, but I want to go back to it as far as what these toxins can also do to the thyroid and like what symptoms we're looking for if thyroid issues are going on, and then how to kind of address that, reverse that, those issues going on there. Sure. Um, the thyroid gland I also see a lot in my practice. Um, the thyroid gland, the, the patients feel like they can't perform as well. They just feel like they're really losing their edge athletically. They feel tired. They complain that they can't do the things that they could do before. And maybe it's even concentrating or focusing at work or, or whatnot. They feel depressed. They feel anxious. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, we can see some toxic, we can see especially mercury settle itself in the thyroid gland. Uh, mercury is pretty common. Um, so you have to ask a patient if potentially they've had amalgams, right? Um, and, and another thing that I see pretty commonly is a lot of these patients are eating tons of tuna fish, like for example. So they'll eat something with high levels of mercury in it and not know that they're getting exposed. Um, so that's something pretty common that we see. Uh, what I like to do is I like to run a full thyroid panel. Uh, when, when you go to a primary care and they're checking to see how your thyroid gland is doing, they check TSH. Sometimes they check T4 or T3 free, but um, generally it's TSH and you're screened and you're told your thyroid gland is normal. There are a lot of other things that can be going on in the thyroid gland. It can be a TSH issue. It also can be an anterior pituitary issue, which means that how the brain communicates with the thyroid gland, something is off there. And I see that a lot with head trauma, environmental exposures as well, um, are, are huge ones as well there as, as well as mold. And then, at, then you convert T4 to T3 in the liver. So you have to see, is the liver backed up? Are you converting T4 to T3? 
as well. And then, um, so those are the big things. And then you're wondering if the patient's autoimmune thyroid. And so none of these tests are really going to be screened in the TSH. So a patient is going to feel a lot of aches and pains. They potentially could be constipated. They may have anxiety or depression because most of these cases are autoimmune. Um, they'll probably switch back and forth between anxiety and depression. Most of these patients are gaining weight. Most of these patients seem like they have um, IBS-like stools. Um, they'll switch from diarrhea to constipation. Sometimes they'll just be constipated. Um, I'm doing a little bit of an oversimplification here, but most patients know when they come in if it's their thyroid or not. They'll know that they need it screened. They'll also feel fatigued working out. I've seen some top athletes have completely underfunctioning thyroids, and they're totally top athletes, and then you take away um, that barrier, and they're doing so much better when you actually start to stimulate their thyroid gland to do better. They can, um, they can work out longer, they can exercise harder, they feel better, their recovery time is quicker. But the thyroid gland is so important because it controls the metabolic rate in your body as well as every enzyme reactions. That means the metabolic rate is, for example, how well you burn fat, or it also controls temperature regulation, how well your body can warm up on a cold day, right? That's, that's the thyroid gland being responsible for that. The other thing that is really important is it controls every enzyme reaction in your body. So that's why we see digestion slow down in hypothyroid or lower functioning thyroid. And that basically means that um, when you chew your food, your, chew, your food goes into your stomach and your stomach should be highly acidic, even though we're told otherwise. And that is supposed to break the food down in these small itty bitty pieces so that your medicine can be your food and you can absorb that into your small intestines, right? And, but what ends up happening in thyroid cases is the food churns in there, it ferments, it goes into your, uh, into your small intestines in relatively large pieces, then we have all these gut issues as well. So we're getting these diagnoses of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. You know, patients are having trouble having a bowel movement. And it's just because the transit time through the intestines really slows down. So we're going to see some of those issues when it comes into thyroid gland. Thyroid area, is, or the thyroid is so fascinating to me for that whole reason of I started going to a naturopath probably 11 years ago now and ran the full panel and realized, you know, what my issues were as far as more like same thing that TSH was fine, but it was a conversion issue and all this stuff. And mm -hmm. so it's been fun over, I, I say fun just because for me, I love experimenting on myself. Um, over the years just to kind of see the, the changes with the thyroid. And one thing I learned recently is my iodine levels tanked and through doing some other research and learning is the foods I was eating actually had tanked my iodine levels. And so, um, it was kind of a, over the past six months, actually, we've been experimenting or I've been like phasing those out. So then we've had lower medication cause I got into hyperthyroid symptoms. And so it's um, it's just so fascinating to me as far as what the thyroid all controls and what it can do to you symptomatically. You brought up a great point about the iodine. That's yeah. so key. And and by the way, this is this is highly debated topic. I have to just tell you this because yeah. initially we were like every thyroid case give them iodine, and then it was like. No, we're making everybody's autoimmunity worse. Do not give them iodine. Stop, reverse. Do not give any Hashimoto's cases iodine. Shame on you. And now the research has said we're full circle. Actually, it's very beneficial to give iodine. So it's <laughs> this full circle about, about iodine and is it okay and should we be doing it or should we not? So I think that's a very, very key point you bring up. I love that. Definitely. And I didn't even know there were foods that existed that could tank your iodine levels. So that's true. I was like, oh, who knew that I was eating all these things every single day? Right. <laughs> Healthy foods. Exactly. <laughs> that's the biggest thing is that a lot of those, it was all, it was all the vegetables I was eating and eating them raw. So it makes them worse. <laughs> and mm -hmm. right. Let's talk about the blood sugar a little bit. Um, and also, you said it yourself earlier that you lived it, and I'm in the same age group, so I lived it to the low-fat diet and how these fats are bad for us. Mm -hmm. so we all live there. 
Um, but then it all, and also how, so I want to get into that issue, but also the blood sugar issues and how that all those together can kind of impact our inflammation in our body. Yeah. So, um, blood sugar is important. It's important to eat frequently. Well, okay. So it's important to eat meals. I think the biggest thing that people do is they eat high sugar foods, um, or they drink a lot of alcohol. And so I want to just back this up instead of getting into all the um, nuances of it. So I am a geek and I love to check my blood sugar levels. So I'm super interested and I'm like walking around with a glucometer, like curious what's going on in my blood sugar because I think it's so interesting because high blood sugar levels can cause inflammation. And so I want to keep my blood sugar levels pretty steady. And I also do not want my blood sugar to spike over 30 points after I eat. That means that I've eaten too much, I've eaten too much sugar at the meal, or something that has contributed to that. So um, I am not a big drinker, believe it or not. I don't drink a lot of alcohol, and here's why. I went out uh, with some friends for dinner a while ago, and I had a glass and a half of wine. And you know, I ate that with dinner. It was a Thursday night, so I had to work the next day. And I checked my blood sugar levels the next day, and my blood sugar generally sits at 85 fasting. So that morning I woke up and I was at 200 fasting. Fasting. So that in most situations would be considered full-blown diabetes, okay? Right? So 127 is what they say is diabetes. So I was curious and I experimented. I love chocolate chip cookies. I can't lie. I love chocolate chip cookies. So I did the same experimentation. I had chocolate chip cookies before I went to bed one night. I had two and the same thing happened. The next morning I woke up and I was 198. And so to me that showed what that uh, processed sugar really was doing to my blood sugar on top of just such a stressful lifestyle because, you know, we're all pretty busy. We all have things going on. And so that really highlighted um, how much these things are spiking your blood sugar and causing inflammation through the night. The night it, when you sleep, you're not digesting. So your body is able to heal up a lot of the damaged tissue that's going on all day. You know, we're, we're constantly eating. We're, and a lot of that um, is being used in our digestion versus cleaning up those tissues versus cleaning all that damage that we're, we've been experiencing during the day. So to me, that was terrifying. And most people have um, interesting eating habits, right? And so what will end up happening is people will go on hardcore binges. You know, we had the diet where you eat 500 calories. You know, there's always something coming out that's, you know, eat less calories or it's about caloric uh, intake. And so people will binge at dinner, but not eat during the day. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we're getting probably more so um, either these patients are hypoglycemic. They eat a bunch, blood sugar levels go up, and then it goes way back down, right? And so we're getting this kind of cycle of high, low, high, low because it's spiking way high and then going down. That's a common pattern that I actually see on blood work, which is reactive hypo or hyperglycemia where you're kind of doing the spiking. I'm seeing that a lot. And I'm not saying intermittent fasting is good or bad, right? I think if you have a stable enough blood sugar, you can do it. What I'm commonly seeing with intermittent fasting goes like this. Someone wakes up, they're like, yeah, I just had a coffee and some creamer in my coffee. Yeah, but I'm intermittent fasting. I eat at noon. That is not intermittent fasting. That is, you have broken your fast. You didn't eat breakfast, but you had unopposed caffeine, which will also spike your blood sugar up quite a bit. So I think that's the number one thing that I see come in where people think they are fasting. But I mean, if you are looking at like doing a traditional fast, I don't know of a, a legitimate fast out there that's like, yeah, you can have coffee three times a day in your fast. It's healthy. You know, and coffee actually has a lot of mold. So, you know, I'm back to the mold. It's just some a mold rant. But so does wine, by the way. But, um, but I think that that's something to think about is how are we eating? I mean, if somebody has really severe blood sugar dysregulations, um, you know, I like to see them eating more frequently and eating, you know, I'm a big proponent of fat and protein. You know, I'm not um, like 
I, I think fat and protein in healthy amounts are good. I'm not one extreme or the other when it comes to diet. Um, I think more of a balanced diet is important and you want to diversify your microbiome. But what I believe in practice and what I do initially when someone comes to see me is I put them on an elimination diet. And then after a month, I slowly open up their diet back up because I think it's very important to diversify the microbiome or your gut flora because we want to be able to eat these foods, right? And I think that a lot of a lot of the foods have been bastardized in what we've done to them. And so that's created these problems, these sensitivities, these allergies, you know, and if we could just go back to eating closer to nature, I think that we would have less problems. You mentioned earlier as far as avoiding pesticides, which I absolutely understand and agree with. Are there any certain foods that you would say like absolutely should be organic because of the pesticides they put on them? Like just think of like people who can't, myself included, not necessarily can afford like to buy organic everything. So like how do we avoid some of those pesticides and some of those toxins that get into our foods? I think, um, I think the Environmental Working Group does a really good job. They always have the dirty dozen of the um, vegetables and fruits that you should not eat conventionally. Um, and then they have the other ones that are like, yeah, you can definitely have these conventionally grown, um, that these are pretty clean. And so I would just recommend following the environmental working groups, you know, dirty dozen and just avoiding those. If you're going to eat, you know, if you can make choices at the store to say, you know, I'll eat these foods organic or these foods not. That's what I would say is probably the easiest way to go about doing it. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's what I would recommend in that case. Is that enough? Does that? Yeah. And that's kind of what I've always followed myself. And so I was curious if you had anything different on that. Environmental working group is a great resource. Like what you're, what you're putting on your skin, you know, cosmetics are a huge contributor to, um, toxins, you know, if sunscreens, what's a safer sunscreen to use. And it's a very, very easy app. They're just awesome. They've really compiled a lot of data and it doesn't necessarily mean spending so much more money. It just means making smart choices. It's interesting. Um, I was talking to a fella, his name is Glenn Livingston. He told me, um, he, he taught, he did a book, uh, never binge again. Anyway, he was chit chatting with me about how, how a lot of, um, food companies will package, things to make it look like it's fruits and vegetables. And so they use really smart things in persuading you to buy. But if you have something in your hand that it's a tool that will allow you not to succumb to that marketing and they will actually pull the nutrients out to put more money into marketing, but it's these variety of colors that make you think that it's healthier. And so subconsciously somewhere we believe that it's healthier. Well, you made a great point there, just the packaging and marketing for things and sticking with that whole blood sugar is like not even thinking like processed foods as far as all the crap that you can eat, but just looking at like salsa and spaghetti sauce and like some of those things and just how much sugar is added to them that, does, you know, and sugar does not need to be in those things. And so if you really start looking at labels, you can realize how much sugar you're actually eating and how unhealthy things actually are. It really takes an education, you know, and I've been doing this for so long that it seems second nature to me, but it really takes some time and some prep to figure out. I hear patients say all the time, like, how do I shop at a grocery store? How do I go through it? How do I not eat these things? Because they've become so accustomed to it. And I tried this, you know, I wanted to support a patient and really understand what they're going through going vegan. So I am certainly not vegan by any means. But I wanted to to really see what that that looks like, and so and I was also doing vegan with no grains, so this was quite interesting. So yeah, <laughs> so um, when I was going through that, I think I struggled with the same thing that a lot of people struggle with to change their diet. What do I eat? What do I eat that's that's clean for me? That's healthy? How do I get enough calories? Um, how am I not eating something processed or using? junky snacks. I mean, really the bottom line is eating whole foods, eating in like a, a compressed window during the day. Like your, your first meal shouldn't be at 5 a.m. and your last meal shouldn't be at 10 30 p.m. Like think about more normal 
hours. You know, if you're crashing, I have a list of, of blood sugar symptoms, but that go between hypo and hyper. But if you're crashing during the day, if you're getting irritable and shaky, if you're hangry, if suddenly you have road rage out of nowhere because you haven't eaten, those are all things that you should take into consideration. Like, are you eating enough? Are you feeding your system enough? And the other side of things, are you tired after you eat? Like, do you feel fatigued? Like, can you not gain weight? Those are the other sides of things where maybe you had too much or you're having some more insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, which is unfortunately really common. Yeah, definitely. The other thing that the other thought I had as you were talking too is your fasting levels in the morning after just that little bit and thinking how many people are possibly misdiagnose a false positive because they get these fasting, fasting blood work, don't talk to their physician about what they actually had the night before mm-hmm. and, you know, or, and how much problem does that cause in us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think people are educated. You'll see people suddenly change their diet and get serious about exercise and their blood sugar levels will drop substantially or their blood sugar levels will be more stable. I mean, you have to look at what's driving blood sugar levels, right? Um, you know, a couple things that we think of for blood sugar levels are, do you have gut infections? What else is going on, you know, on your lab work? Just taking that individualized approach and saying, you know, what are you struggling with if you're eating clean or what are you eating at what times of day to figure out maybe how we can tweak that so you don't feel like you can't eat anything, right? How can we make this um, a little bit more uh, moderate? Yeah, definitely. I don't know if it's nationwide or if it's just in Phoenix, if it's a local company, but I keep hearing ads for this company that they can like join their, re- their clinical trial and they can like, it'll basically like end diabetes completely. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, you can do that easily enough without that. <laughs> you sure can. You sure can. You just have to take control of your health. And I think at the bottom line, this is not about being on metformin or whatnot. I mean, exercise is so critical on that. You know, eating the right foods is so critical. Figuring out what's going on in your system. And I've just heard so much recently, you know, obviously I'm in the functional medicine world, but I've heard so much recently, patients, you know, come to me as kind of a last ditch effort and that's fine. I, you know, um, but they'll basically say my, my physician says I'm not bad enough to treat, or my physician say that my symptoms aren't bad enough to treat, but I don't want this to get bad where I have to be on a pill. So people want the information. They want to do this, but they don't know how. And so if that's where you are, you feel like there's symptoms that are off in your body, there's generally an explanation as to why. If you catch it really early, it means like doing some tweaks and doing, you know, a few supplements and, you know, moving on with it, right? Um, you don't necessarily need to be on supplements forever. Um, that's really not the the jam in functional medicine. I think people are trying to correct the underlying problem and then, uh, you know, fix the next underlying problem until you're great. Are there, on that note, are there any just, um, you know, not say like supplements to heal issues long-term, but just on a general health basis, any certain supplements you do recommend to to be taking daily? (laughs) It totally depends on the case, right? So let's say I have, (laughs) I mean, I think it's so individualized. I can't even, um, think of certain things. In certain cases, I will honestly recommend fish oil, but they're gut cases because that's helping to heal, um, for example, the gap junctions in the gut if I think that they have a leaky gut. So the literature has come out for that. But I also don't keep people on a supplement long-term unless, for example, they have an autoimmune thyroid that I'm trying to heal, as well as I'm dropping that dosage on the supplement down. So the more chronic the issue the more likely they'll be on supplements longer. Um, I do not recommend something as a daily XYZ. Occasionally I will boost up, for example, you know, we, we get the conversation about multis. Um, you know, I've seen so many multis in the colon when you run an x-ray fully non-digested, mm-hmm. nothing. It's just there. Um, and so, you know, 
I think if you're going to do something and you really feel like your nutrient status is off, I would highly recommend running a nutrient status test to see where that is. You can have problems if your copper levels get out of balance. You can have problems if your zinc levels are too low. I mean, figure out where things are versus taking um, an approach. I don't give people probiotics long-term. That's another one that's really common. Um, I will fix the issue and then move on. I've seen too many stool tests where quote unquote good flora is overgrown. So I check, I test. Um, you know, those are the things that, I, you know, I, I have a lot of patients, you know, doing chiropractic medicine as well. I have patients that sometimes will do turmeric or something like that for a little bit longer term to, um, to save them from surgery. Uh, but yeah, I think to answer your question, I believe in very much an individualized approach. For example, if a woman has a copper IUD, I give them zinc until they get the copper IUD out because zinc and copper have to be in the right ratio. Um, and I want to protect their brain from that copper excess uh, if they're not willing to get it out or think about other forms of birth control methods. Totally makes sense. Um, on that note, let's kind of talk about that a little bit um, as far as birth control pills and what they can actually do to the body. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> let's just get controversial. Um, so I am not a huge fan of a lot of the options out there for women um, for birth control, which is not popular, right? If you are on a birth control and you're not having any problems with it and you feel great or fantastic, you are generally B vitamin deficient, just FYI. If it's not giving you any problems, great. Um, I find that a lot of women have um, very big, they have uh, issues related to hormones when they're on birth control pills. They get weight gain. They get really bloated. They have some some women have terrible periods. Some women feel better. It completely depends on the case, right? Because our hormones are very different. They're up, down, left, and right. It's probably, it's such complicated. Um, it's, it's really complicated physiology. So if a woman has gotten great luck with birth control, I try and, and potentially she wants to come off one day. I want to get her body in such good balance um, that she can come off with no problems. I never pull or never recommend somebody go off of birth control if it's been effective, right? And a lot of times you will see birth control being extremely effective in what we call polycystic ovary syndrome, which is where women get cysts on their ovaries or they have elevated testosterone. Um, so I do not do that, right? Um, so I will balance out their body. You have to balance out the blood sugar in that particular scenario. You have to lower what we call androgen levels, which are the male hormones, you know, thinking about thinking along the testosterone lines. Um, you have to elevate progesterone and, and that helps the body become more stable there. As it relates to other birth control methods, um, I'm just, I'm not a fan across the board. I've seen problems with the Mirena. I've seen Mirena cause um, everything from, breakthrough bleeding to really uh, to heavy duty bloating to knee pain. I've seen real serious problems with the Paragard, which is the non-hormonal birth control. There have been recent studies that have come out uh, that if you have excess copper, you are at high, high risk of brain deterioration. So Alzheimer's disease is huge. Um, and, and already that's an epidemic. So we really need to think about what we're putting in our bodies and we're told that it's safe. I see women that have heavy duty periods. They become so iron deficient, deficient because their periods are so bad. Um, to the point I've, I've heard, I've heard all kinds of stories and I will spare you those on here because they're, they can be graphic, but ser serious, terrible, um, abdominal complaints, weight gain. Uh, and I've seen, you know, there's a, there's a Facebook site about it. Um, and they call it, they'll, they'll say there was another Paragard baby because a lot of times women can get pregnant still on the Paragard. So, or on any sort of birth control method. So I am really not a fan. If you can, you know, it's unpopular to say to use barrier methods, but I also think using timing 
is another effective way if your if your cycle is right on. Um, I think that that's also helpful as long as you're not ovulating or in that two weeks before your period. Um, I think that that can also be a, a good way to do it. And if you are in those two weeks before your period, I just recommend barrier methods. Awesome. Thank you for going into that. Very not hot topic. <laughs> hot topic. Very like I feel like I'm the bearer of bad news on that one. <laughs> I did throw that one on you. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, let's kind of geek out just a little bit more before we finish off. Neurochemistry, neurotransmitters, how does this all play into us as a functional human and what can actually impact those? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of, of neurotransmitters. I, they really help me out a ton. So when we're thinking about neurotransmitters, or I think the most common way to think about it is an SSRI, right? You're depressed, you go into your doctor, they give you an SSRI. So that really, that one, which is serotonin, is supposed to help you boost your mood and helps you feel good, like you're happy. It's your happy neurotransmitter. I'm going to read through a list of what you see with serotonin really quick so you can know if maybe, if maybe this relates to you. But what it really comes down to is um, serotonin makes you feel artistic. It makes you feel happy. It makes you want to be around your friends. It, it makes you feel happy in overcast weather. Um, you have enthusiasm for your favorite activities. You have enjoyment for your favorite foods. You love your relationships. You sleep really well. You get into a deep sleep. You don't have pain. You don't have unprovoked anger, and you're so excited about life. That's serotonin. So serotonin just helps us be connected and feel good. In low serotonin cases, people can get migraines, they can get IBS or ability to transit through their gut, and they just feel kind of meh. So um, an example I like to give is I was, I have two offices, and I was expanding one of my offices, moving my personal residence, getting that rented out. I mean, like the list went on and on and on. And I remember walking in to the new office, and I just sat on the floor, and I, I just sat there, and I said, I don't care what color we paint this. I don't know how I want to decorate this. And it's not like I was down and out on the couch. I just was so overwhelmed that I had no opinion about what we did. So stress depletes neurotransmitters. Trauma depletes neurotransmitters. Blood sugar depletes neurotransmitters. In fact, that's the biggest depletion of it. And when we think about Thanksgiving dinner, and, and tryptophan is a big precursor for serotonin. Is it the turkey that makes people tired? Or is it just the amount of things that we're eating on Thanksgiving dinner, right? So that's the first one. The second one that's really important is dopamine. Dopamine is our motivated one. I, I tell people that Eeyore is the epitome of how, Eeyore is low dopamine. Like, sacrifice the donkey. <laughs> oh, that. I think Eeyore is epitome of it, but you'll have feelings of worthlessness. You won't be able to focus on your tasks. Um, you'll be distracted really easily. Um, you'll, you'll just feel kind of meh. It's a different form of what a lot of people think of as quote unquote depression, but I also see it be, um, uh, I also see it with somebody that's pretty high functioning that has some some dopamine levels. You'll also see them just put off their taxes. They'll procrastinate their taxes, and they're they're functioning in all these other areas of life. But they're like, I do not want to do my taxes. Um, the normal things deplete dopamine, like deplete serotonin, and the the other one I forgot to add was leaky gut. So this is basically pathology of the gut because. 90% of your neurotransmitters are made in your GI system. So it's about figuring out what's going on with that gut and repairing it. But I always give neurotransmitters before um, I start to heal up the gut because telling a patient to go on some specific diet for 30 days, they can't do it when they feel like Eeyore. Like <laughs> they can't do it. So I'm not going to push them. And they come in and they say, I really want to do this diet but I'm craving sugar so bad, right? And I just have to have sugar. So sugar is going to 
in, in simple carbs is going to increase those neurotransmitters short term. And then again, you're going to be in that blood sugar cycle. So it's like a chicken and the egg up oh, increase short term gets worse cycle again, want sugar and you know, so, so that's kind of the thing. The last one that I think is really important to talk about that I see a lot of is GABA. GABA, the epitome of a GABA deficiency looks like ticker. So since we're on Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> we'll just say that. So Tigger is just very anxious. Bing, 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 lists. I've got to get all these things done. I wake up in the middle of the night. I have to run through lists. Um, they'll be highly anxious. They'll have knots in their stomach. They'll have feelings of impending doom, even when doom is not coming, right? So GABA is really important to, to address as well. Um, especially if someone's very deficient as you're fixing the rest of the gut up. And that can be everything from, you know, gut infections to leaky gut to dysbiosis to SIBO, you name it. But those are all the neurotransmitters that I think, you know, that we have time for today. today. But they're very, very, very important. And I think that we all go through bouts where we are really neurotransmitter deficient. I think that's why drugs are so popular because they increase a lot of these neurotransmitters short term, but then really decrease them. Um, so I, that's alcohol, sugar, caffeine, you name it, um, really can give a spike in these neurotransmitters. Awesome. Thank you so much for explaining that. Definitely helpful. You're so welcome. Awesome. So you share some amazing information with us. If someone wants to look more into what you do or get in contact with you for any reason, how can they find you? Sure. Um, so we have two offices um, in Longmont and in Denver, Colorado. Um, you can look us up on our website, which is short for Alternative Family Medicine. It's www.altfamed. And that's short for Alternative Family Medicine. And then you can also follow us on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have it all. So um, we put out great information if you want to join our newsletter. Um, we generally do that every other month because I'm busy doing this. And, uh, and then we will release a podcast coming up here soon called Fearless Health Podcast in August. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Broder, for your time today. Really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes this week's episode of Highly Functional. If you enjoyed it and found the information helpful, I invite you to head over to Facebook and join my group, Obstacle Course Racing Athlete Health and Performance, where you can both join your OCR tribe as well as find very helpful, useful information on how to become a more dominant racer, a more resilient racer, and truly race at your peak performance. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>